Amen. <clears throat> so we are, we are in the midst of, uh, when I say the midst, on the third lesson of a series that we're calling Recalibrate. Uh, this is the last week for two weeks that you'll get to hear me speak. I know that that's sad for many of you. Uh, I, I do encourage you to show up next week in humor, uh, at the very least, Ben Waycaster, our intern. Uh, he's, he's got a great lesson that, that he's uh, putting together, continuing this series, and I, and I wish I could be here to hear it. Mary and I will be in Nashville uh, for, for a three-day conference, and, uh, and so we will be out of pocket. But the interns will be here running things. Things will go great. Uh, uh, you, won't even, you won't even notice that we're gone, uh, right? So uh, the sound system will probably work. Uh, so, uh, so, we, um, um, so I'm excited about that. But, to, but we are uh, continuing this series where we're using the Minor Prophets to look about how, how did God speak to his people at a time when they, when they were deep in misunderstandings about him, deep in misunderstandings about how they should live out their faith. As, we co- as we've come back to over the last couple of lessons, uh, we've talked about how for most of us, we've grown up in the church. We've grown up uh, around churches, around Christians, uh, in youth groups. Our parents or grandparents might be Christians. You might have had to go to church even when you didn't want to. You maybe grew up going to the, uh, VBS uh, and learning or church camp or Bible camp or whatever and learning about the scripture. Some of you didn't, and that, that's, that's uh, not just okay. That's awesome that you're here. Um, but for many of us, we grew up learning about God and learning about the scriptures. And like any kind of long-term relationship that you're in, you, you often get to the place where there are misunderstandings that get kind of lodged into the relationship, and there's habits or routines that you fall into that at one point were very meaningful. But now they're just kind of external rituals that you go through. And so we're listening to how does God speak to the people of Israel at a time when they are like that, at a time when they, they just kind of assume He's their God, they think they understand Him, they think that they have fallen into these rituals and sacrifices um, and, and various activities that means that they're okay with him, and God, in, in speaking through the minor prophets, shakes them out of that. And he calls them to have their faith recalibrated, um, their faith to kind of um, recentered on who God really is and what he really calls us to. And last week we looked at Jonah and how Jonah, uh, throughout the, uh, um, the, the whole story of Jonah, that, that it's God teaching his people about his limitless love for everyone. And so tonight we're going to be in Hosea. If you want to go ahead and turn to Hosea chapter 1, uh, we will spend the whole time in Hosea chapter 1 and 2. Next week, Ben will be uh, speaking from Hosea 6. Um, but tonight we'll be in Hosea chapter 1. And because one of the most effective ways to reach people of your generation is to talk about dead guys from 300 years ago, I, I want to start with a quote from uh, a theologian uh, who a few hundred years ago was speaking to college students, and he said this, So many of you are a generation of triflers. Triflers with God, with one another, and with your own souls. Who is this? Preston? John Wesley. John Wesley, okay. So John Wesley was speaking... So John... I told you, I told you you had your big moment coming up. Uh, so, so John Wesley was speaking to college students, kind of in your position. At that time, they'd have been a little bit younger. And he says that you guys, your generation, you trifle with God, you trifle with one another, and you trifle with your own souls. Now, that might fall flat for you because maybe, maybe the word trifle, we don't really use it a lot. Um, it's, not, it's not very commonplace now. Um, but what does the word trifle mean? What does it mean to trifle with something? Screw around with. Okay, screw around with. What else? It's less vernacular. I'm kidding. I'm <laughs> To not take very seriously? Yeah. And so it means to treat something as if it's not important. 
as if it's not a weightier matter. And John Wesley, he, he's standing in front of college students and he's saying that one of the problems with your generation is you're not treating God as if he's important. You're not treating one another as if you're important, as if the other people are important. And you're not even treating your own soul as if, you're, as if it's important. Like the heart of your being, the heart, uh, kind of the core of your personality and how you relate to God, that you trifle with that. That it's not something you think about. It's not something that kind of dominates your day about how am I doing in my soul? How am I doing relating to God? How's my faith doing? How's my spiritual formation doing? It's not something that you're concerned with, people of, of, of this generation, that he's speaking to. And as I've been thinking about this passage in Hosea 1 and 2, I think that one of, one of, the, one of the obstacles that we could have to kind of getting to see what Hosea is getting at, is that for, for many of us, what John Wesley says of people a few hundred years ago is true of us. That we don't treat our souls as if they are of utmost importance. We don't treat our relationship with God as if it's something that's important. And this is particularly true, I think, if you've grown up around churches and around Christianity, that your relationship with God and kind of your soul, the health of your soul, the health of your spiritual life, is just kind of part of the background. And so for some of you, it doesn't bother you at all if if sin starts to dominate your life. For some of you, it doesn't bother you at all if something other than God comes to take a center part of your life. For some of you, it doesn't bother you at all if you don't give God the time of day, because you were raised in VBSs, right? You were raised in church. You were raised with Christian family. And so you just kind of assume that everything's okay. I think that we can have this breezy confidence with God that instead of coming out of a covenantal relationship, instead of coming out of love for God and an understanding that we are His kids, what it comes out of is just this, this kind of laid-back trifling understanding that everything's going to be okay with God and that my relationship with Him isn't of all that much importance. So whether or not you're pursuing sin, whether or not there are idols in your life, whether or not you go throughout a whole day without giving God a moment of thought, it's not a big deal to you. But what I want you to see, let me rephrase that, what Hosea wants you to see, I think, in these first couple of passages, is even if that's true of you, even if your soul is not of the utmost importance to you, even if John Wesley, if he were standing here, would say to you that you trifle with your own soul, that is not true of God. God does not trifle with your soul. God does not treat your soul as if it's of least importance. It's not on the back burner for God. Instead, it's right opposite. That for God, it is of utmost importance to Him about how you relate to Him. Even if you're rejecting Him. Even if you're running from Him. And I think that Hosea helps us to understand this because Hosea um, sets up the relationship of God and His people in a very provocative way. And you kind of have to follow this along to get to this point where you start to see God's care for His people, God's care for His people's relationship with Him. And how important, hey, we can actually go off that quote, by the way. Um, God's care um, for His people and their relationship to Him. I think to see that, you kind of have to understand how Hosea sets up this relationship. 
And so Hosea begins, um, and we're not going to read every, every single little passage of Hosea chapter 1 and, and chapter 2, but please, please do turn there. Um, Hosea begins <clears throat> by God speaking to the prophet Hosea. And he tells him, excuse me, he tells him in verse 2, he says, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Biblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And so, uh, Hosea starts to set up this relationship between God and, and, and His people by setting up His marriage relationship. God says, go marry a promiscuous woman. You might have heard that Gomer was a prostitute. She, 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 uh, the Scriptures don't say that she was. Instead, she ended up being unfaithful to Him. Um, but he, but uh, So God tells uh, uh, um, Hosea to go marry a promiscuous woman. And He tells Hosea to do that because that is how Israel is reacting to God. And so at the very beginning, he sets up this parallel between Hosea's relationship with his wife and God's relationship with his people. And so at the very beginning, when God wants to talk about his relationship with his people, he starts talking about a husband's relationship with his wife. But not just a husband's relationship with his wife, but a husband's relationship with a wife that leaves him, that's unfaithful to him, that hurts him. So, it goes on... <clears throat> And look at verse, uh, look at chapter 2. I said we weren't going to spend much time in, 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 in chapter 1. But in chapter 2, it's kind of set up like um, a courtroom scene where Hosea starts to accuse his wife of what's happened, of what she's done. <clears throat> and look down at verse 5. Their mother has been unfaithful. And has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me food, my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. And so he sets, he sets this up as a husband who's, who's looking at his wife and his wife has abandoned him. Later on in chapter 2, uh, Hosea says of his wife that his wife has forsaken him or forgotten him and pursued other lovers. And so when God wants to set up how his relationship is with his people, he uses a husband who, despite his love for his wife, despite him blessing his wife, despite, uh, we skipped over a lot, but despite him having a child with his wife, his wife leaves him. And she goes after, she says, her lovers. Because, why? Because they're going to bless her. She gets gifts from them. There's a joy for her in pursuing other people. Now think for a moment about that setup. Think for a moment about what God is trying to communicate about His people's relationship with Him. If you were Hosea, you would be hurt. If you were Hosea, you would be devastated over this. The pain of having your wife, the mother of your son, go after another lover. Some of you know people who've gone through that experience. And you know the pain that they live through. Many of my friends have had their marriages ended through unfaithfulness. I've lost two friends, two friends who took their own lives 
because they were so pained and hurt by their wives leaving them. One of, the, one of my um, absolute best friends in high school, we played basketball together all the time. He's a year younger than me. We're over each other's houses all the time. And a couple of years ago, I hear that he'd taken his own life. Now, that is the emotional kind of um, life that God draws into, kind of draws out of, to describe his relationship with his people. The hurt that he feels. The abandonment. The frustration. And I think it's interesting... Um, I think it's interesting that in, in this passage, when it talks about Gomer going after her lovers, that Gomer's talking about kind of what she's getting out of that. She'll go after her lovers. They provide olive oil. They provide all these things. Because isn't it true that we so often pursue sin, we pursue things other than God because we think we will gain by it. We think there's more pleasure in it. We think there's more joy in it. Like she, she is leaving her husband, because she thinks life will be better with her other lovers. And so often we abandon God, because whether you would say this or not, whether, whether if I just kind of sat down and asked you, you, you would voice this and own up to it, we so often pursue other things because kind of in the heart of hearts, deep down, we think that life will be better if we're pursuing money, if we're pursuing acceptance, if we're pursuing sexual sin, if we're pursuing partying, if we're pursuing selfish ambition, we think that life will be better if you could just achieve the dreams that you want for yourself. Better than it would be if you were focused on God rather than being focused on your career or on money. In the same way, Gomer thought that her life would be better with these other people. Now, if you've ever gone through an intense amount of pain, if you've ever had somebody hurt you, if you've ever had somebody just merely frustrate you, you know that in the midst of that pain, in the midst of the kind of relational discomfort, of the anger, the frustration, of the sadness, of someone hurting you, that your natural reaction is to disengage with them. Like when someone hurts you deeply, you don't pursue them. Like, and, and here's how I know this is true, because most of you don't pursue relationships with people even after they do minor things. You can think of people in your life that have kind of done trivial things and you just kind of, I don't want anything to do with them. I can remember, I can remember, um, um, I, I've said this before, I, I shared this story before a few years ago, I think, but I remember being in a small group in Tuscaloosa, like 10 years ago, I lived there. Um, and, and getting up, it, we were eating together, and I had at this time, I still had this chair, my wife doesn't let it stay in the living room anymore, it was my favorite chair, and, and I got up to go get like seconds for chili, and I go to sit back down, and this girl, this girl in our, our group that I knew, that I thought was a friend, she looks at me, and she gets up from her seat, and just sits down in that chair, and doesn't move, doesn't even say anything to me, and I just thought it was like so incredibly rude, because that was my chair, and, and I like... I honestly had an issue with her for a while, because <laughs> like that, because it's a very comfortable chair. Uh, it's just hideous. We pulled it out of the garbage. I like it. My wife does not. Um, but but these petty, these kind of petty moments show us that like even when somebody does the slightest thing, we reject them. Some of you have had a classmate kind of merely brush you off. They could be having a terrible day. 
but you ask them a question, they're short with you, and you've just written them off. You don't want to talk with them, you don't want to sit by them. If you need something, go ask somebody else. I've known college students who they have gotten in fights with their roommates over who's drinking whose milk, and they don't want to live together the next year. Right? But even more deeply, some of you have been hurt by a parent or a sibling. Some of you know the pain of being broken up with after a long relationship. Some of you know the pain of finding out that who you thought was your best friend has betrayed you. And I bet out of everyone in this room, your reaction to that type of pain, that type of hurt, that type of abandonment, is not to pursue that person. Your reaction to that is either to get revenge or to just disengage. Some of you will not talk to a family member. Some of you will not talk to an ex-friend or an ex-boyfriend or an ex-girlfriend because they hurt you so deeply. I've had people in my family, like uh, not my siblings, but kind of uncles and aunts. This is recorded, so I have to be careful. We'll edit that out. Um, but who, don't, who have not spoken to each other in years. Siblings. Because of how one hurt the other. Your reaction to pain, your reaction to unfaithfulness, your, your reaction to disloyalty is not to pursue the person. And you might read that onto God. You might think that if you have hurt God, you might think that your abandonment of God, you might think that your, um, your pursuit of sin puts you in a position where God is kind of hands-off, where God's waiting on you to return. And you might think that because that's what you would do. You might think that's because that's what people in your life do to one another. You might think that because you grew up with a certain picture of theology that if you didn't obey all the rules, God was mad at you until you, you, you obeyed all the rules and repented properly. Some of you in this room right now, because of your sins, because of your porn addictions, because of your sexual sin, because of your partying, because of your intense focus on school to the exclusion of God, you right now, the biggest emotion you have with God is absence. You feel like God has disengaged with you because of what you've done. And at this point in the story, if you're in Gomer's position, you would think that that makes perfect sense, right? If you were in Hosea's position, you wouldn't pursue Gomer. Most of you wouldn't. And Hosea has taken this picture that you have of God and he wants to break it. He wants to destroy it. He wants it to recalibrate it, to understand how God really reacts in those moments. Again, you might, you might picture God as removed. You might picture God as disengaged. You might picture God as kind of this wrathful being in the sky, particularly from the Old Testament, you know, who because you've sinned and you've pursued other things and you've rejected Him, that His reaction to you is absence, His reaction to you is distance, His reaction, He's going to stand in the corner with His arms crossed till you get your act together. And if that is your picture of God, it is not the picture of God that Hosea gives us. Let's keep looking at verse, at chapter 2.
look at verse 6. Remember, you know, we're kind, of, we're kind of dealing with this on two levels. This is Hosea's response to Gomer, but it's inspired to be a parallel with God's response to His people, His people's unfaithfulness, His people's disloyalty, His people's sin. It's His people doing the things that every one of us in this room have done at one point in our lives. Maybe today. Yeah. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. And if you think that's vengeance, you're wrong. He's not just frustrating her pursuits just to ruin her life, right? It's not just she she wants these lovers. I want to make sure she's never happy. You might read that that way, but you're about to find out that's not the case. Instead, he's saying, I'm putting obstacles. Gomer's pursuing her lovers. Gomer thinks her life will be better with them. I'm going to keep her from finding them. She wants her lovers. I'm going to make sure she doesn't get to her lovers. It's God saying to his people that you might want to run away from me. You might want to put other things in the center of, of your life. You might seek your pleasure in drinking and partying or wealth or greed or ambition or sex. But I'm going to make sure that you don't seek, you don't get the joy that you're seeking there. Why? Not to make you miserable. But verse 7, the last part. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first. Why? What's the next sentence say? Because I have nowhere else to go? Because it can't get worse than this? What's the very next thing that's said? For then I was better off than now. Do you get what's happening here? Gomer is running as fast as she can away from Hosea. Gomer is abandoning Hosea. She doesn't want him. She wants her lovers. She wants that life. And Hosea's reaction is, I'm going to make sure she doesn't get that. Why? Because I want her to remember how good we had it. I want her to know that her life with me is better than the life she could have with them. It's God saying to His people, you might be pursuing the idols, you might be pursuing the sin, but I'm going to make sure you never find joy there because I want you to remember that your true joy is found in Me. He's not frustrating the desires of His people just to be mean. He's frustrating them because He knows that if He, if he just let you pursue whatever you want and let you have joy in that, your life would be miserable. You don't know what you're asking for. And instead, he's doing that so at some point you'll reach a point where you say, you know what, all these things I'm pursuing aren't worth it. Life was better with God. You know, it kind of, it, it, it makes being a minister in some ways easy. Because usually by the time somebody has just pursued headlong sin, and they're ready to turn back, I don't have to convince them that they should turn back, right? I don't have to convince them that the things they were pursuing were bad for them, because they've seen it. Now, uh, I think this is like my eighth year in full-time ministry, and I've seen a lot of groups of students um, who uh, partied 
and got drunk and, and, and just kind of did the bar scene. Um, a lot of them who are active in my ministry, a lot of them who are active in this ministry, and that's how they fill their weekends up. And you know what? Here's what I can say about all of them. Their lives were worse because of it. Every single one of their groups, the people who did this, who lived this way, had the, have the worst relationships, the worst friendships. They're always bickering. They always have relationship problems with people of the opposite sex. Their grades slide. That, it's not a good path for them, Right? And it reached a point in many of their lives where they realized, I don't have to convince them of that. And it's like God is just saying to His people, you know, it's like after, after you've, you've kind of pursued headlong other pursuits, He just kind of says, how's that working out for you? And when you kind of come to your senses, the answer is not very well. The answer is, it was way better when I was pursuing God. Notice that God, in this kind of in this... Uh, imagery of Hosea, God has been actively involved in His people's life, making sure that they don't find joy in what they're pursuing. Making sure that the only place they're going to find joy is in Him. And then notice, if you flip, flip to verse 14. And again, I'm not trying to dwell on, 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 on kind of the negative aspect of this, but just remember that this imagery is of a husband whose wife has repeatedly cheated on him. A husband whose wife did not want him. And you get verse 14. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Then I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Echor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. And that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. Think about the level of love and mercy and compassion that's expressed in those few verses. And you can only get it against the backdrop of the pain and disloyalty and unfaithfulness that God's people has shown him. And God's response to that is to pursue them, to woo them back from all the sins they're coming to. And when they turn back to him, he accepts them. He welcomes them back. He showers them with gifts. That's the whole stuff about the valley and the vineyards. And the relationship gets restored to one of husband and wife. This is, this is especially meaningful if we had read um, a, a lot of the whole chapter because you get these moments where it's like, uh, uh, no more will Gomer be my wife. <laughs> and then you reach this point where it's like, you know what, I'm going to pursue Gomer. You know what, I'm going to accept Gomer back. Gomer will be my wife again. And do you get, do you get in this moment the level of compassion, the love, the emotion that God is trying to convey through Hosea. The emotion that God is trying to convey about how He views us. Even when we are at our worst. Like last week we looked at Jonah to talk about God's limitless love to all people throughout the world. But for Christians, we, we often know that. But 
over and over again, what I've seen is, 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 is Christians, and even my, you know, in myself, I don't say even myself, like, you guys wouldn't believe this, but as a minister, I struggle at times. Uh, but, 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 like, Christians and myself, I've noticed that over and over again, our problem isn't, does God love the people groups of the world? Our problem is, does God still love me when I've disobeyed Him? Does God still love me when I'm running away from Him? Does God still love me when I've gone through months and months of months of not giving Him the time of day? And the answer that Hosea gives to you is not just that God loves you, but God was there with you. And God was pursuing you. And God was trying to order your life so that you didn't get what you wanted to get because He wanted you to remember Him. And He wanted you to remember the joy you had in Him. And He wanted you to return to Him. And when you did return to Him... Or when you do, if you haven't already, He accepts you back. He loves you. Your relationship is restored. It's not grudges. It's not child of God with an asterisk. You know, you guys remember those few years where He didn't He didn't care about me. What Hosea wants you to see is not is not like Jonah, the limitless love of God to the world, but the limitless love of God to you. Even when you don't want God. Some of you have been pursuing everything except God. There's some of you in this room who are at a place in your life where you cannot honestly say that God is truly your God. That your life is oriented around Him. That your life is kind of structured by Him. That He is your God and you are part of His people. And what Jose wants you to see is that God loves you, God is merciful for you, and God is relentlessly pursuing you. Wooing you back, calling you back because of His love for you. And my, my hope, my encouragement, my prayer is if you're in that place tonight, if you feel that distance from God, if you think God is disengaged with you because of the decisions you make, I hope you see from Hosea that you are dead wrong. And that God loves you, and He's pursuing you, and He's waiting to have you back as His child, as an object of His love, as the one who gives you the joys and desires of your heart.